Hi, it's Wednesday night, and I'm going to do a porn podcast, um, which I undertook to do uh, at the behest of our friend Gluck Gluck Plumbing in Gluck and Lakewood. Um, so I just want to say, if you were living in Baltimore, you're going to be in my house on Purim. Do not listen to this. <clears throat> it's not for you. Um, okay, here we go. <clears throat> uh, I want to start by talking about Kimu Bekibla Yehudim, which, as we all know, is a famous passage. And it says, you know, Kiblu Masha Lo Kiblu Be Hadu Be Kiblu Be Miachash and especially Kimu Lamayla Masha Kiblu Mata, that upstairs in heaven they were Makayim what they were, what they meant, what they ordained downstairs to make Purim. Question is, how do we know this? Kimu Masha Kimu Lamata. This is not a pasuk in the Chumash. So, uh, so how do we know this? Um, how did Mordechai and Esther know this? I mean, didn't want prophets in the classical sense that God came to them and said, uh, you know, I approve of this holiday. Otherwise, they would say so. It doesn't seem so. Otherwise, why would not Chicken Hesegdola? And remember, they were contemporary and they had prophets among them. Why would they oppose uh, Mordecai and Esther when they wanted to, number one, include the Megillah in the Bible, number two, establish Purim as an official holiday, Kivuni Ladoros, you know, Leontav Lakriya, Leos Leshem, as Rashi says. And uh, and when they want and they opposed them when they wanted to prohibit it, it's a uh, malacha just like a real yontiv. <clears throat> I mean, if it's kimulamayla mashe kimulamata, how can the people downstairs oppose that? Based on Rabbi Yonasayibshitz, who was my favorite book <coughs> on Purim, but I'm just going to touch on him now. The Jews had never wanted the pain in the neck of keeping the mitzvahs. They never did. That's the meaning, of course, of kafim harkagigis mikan vodol rabbelaraiso. Now, my take on this is that this must have been doubly uh, uh, aggravated when the Jews went into Gaulus in Babel and then in Persia because their, their their Judaism was a sullen one. If it's <clears throat> true that then they had to do it. So it's it's a sullen uh, uh, obedience. This is why uh, they were not willing to be most beneficial on a whole bunch of occasions. The story with the idol of Nebuchadnezzar that they all bowed down to, except for Hanan Mishal Azariah. The suit of Achashverosh that they all went to and had Hanol. The bowing down to Haman and, and to the idol on his breast. On each occasion, the Jews um, gave in. After all, there are shittas, as we all know, that a vote is not Yehug Yavor. There's that famous tosis, you know, that uh, we paskai away or not, or whatever. So, you know, it could be, but it bespeaks a mindset in which, look, I gotta keep these doggone mitzvahs. Don't want to, but Kofim Haka Gigas got no choice. So any loophole I'm gonna use. Sullen Judaism is one when you do whatever you do sullenly out of compulsion. Therefore, any obligation you can get out of you do. Indeed, I can just imagine how the Jews felt when the base of Migdash was destroyed, and they all suffered because they failed to perform mitzvahs. They had failed to perform mitzvahs they never wanted to really keep in the first place. They looked for an excuse to get out of the whole covenantal relationship, as Chazal tell us, because in Yecheskel, it's the Amrulo, the Jewish people said Yecheskel, we're told, if you have an Ebed that the, that the master sells him, so that means he's no longer, he's Yotzim Rishus, he's no longer belonged to the first master. Amrulam Hain, Yecheskel, yes, Amrulo, to the Jewish people say Yecheskel, who's a Navi, since God obviously sold him to the Gaim, 
because he let them conquer the kingdom of Yehuda. He let them destroy Jerusalem and the base of Megdash. He took us all out in the exile. We're ice yidden, right? So hooray, we don't have to get kosher anymore, you know? Now this is not the language, my friends, of religious passion. This is not the language face of a Kleisenberger Rebbe or something like that after Holocaust. Like, hooray, we don't got to do this anymore. And the reply they received from Yechezkel was not in a loving tone either. Right? It wasn't a post-Holocaust thing. Amr Laham, Chazal tells the Yechezkel is supposed to have said to them, If you have an Ebed that the master sold him with the intention of taking him back, David never left the Rishus. So it knows God intends to take you back, therefore you can't get rid you can't get rid of the mitzvahs. <coughs> and the Pasik is in Yecheskel Chaf, Haola Ruchachem Hayulosia. It's a Pasik. Haola Ruchachem Hayulosia. Now what you have in mind, God says, I will not allow it to happen. Asheratem Omrim, it's a Pasik. Asheratem Omrim, Niyakagayim, Asher Svivasenu. O Kamishbukas Adama, Lesharates, Eitzva Evan. We want to be idol worshippers now, and don't hold it against us. Very famous passage. God says, I will, uh, willy-nilly, I will rule over you by force and power and, 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 and uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, physical kayach, uh, uh, whether you like it or not. So notice you can't be icy and <clears throat> So basically, tough luck. <clears throat> My point is like this. God never said, oh, I feel, I know how you feel. Lost the base of Migdash. It's not a terrible. You can cry on my shoulder. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough. You want to leave? You can't leave. I threw the base of Migdash. Too bad. Nothing you can do about it. <coughs> okay? <coughs> so the whole relationship was a sick relationship. He did Kofum Haka Gigas. They didn't want to do it. They went along because they had to. There's no escape. And so you do it. But there's no joy. Added to this, Golis introduced in the Jewish life the reality of being the stranger, the odd man out, mocked, resented, dissed, because the Jew was always different from everyone else. Remember, this was a new experience for the Jews back then. Not like you and I today, unfortunately, after a couple thousand years, we're used to it. So, uh, in addition to Kaplan the Harkagigas, now they were in exile. So, at the time of Purim, you had both sullen as well as Jews being uncomfortable in their alienness. I know there's a couple exceptions. Yeah, Daniel and his friends, Ezra and Mordechai, but they're the exceptions. <clears throat> this sullenness, alienation, was reflected in Jewish dress. According to the Eveshitz, the Jews did not wear their tzitzes out, but rather inside. It's not Osir, but it reflected a mindset. Same with tefillin. They wore tiny tefillin, which were not easily visible. Uh, it's kosher, but it reflected a mindset. It's, you're trying to, uh, what should I say, avoid the problems of public identifying as a Jew. It's not something you're comfortable with. <clears throat> it's not something you want to do. It's something you're almost ashamed of or certainly feel like, it's a bummer, i got to do it, but I'm going to do it in the, in the least obtrusive way. The exception, again, was Mordechai. According to Yosef when it says, Ish Yehudi it means Ish Yehudi. He was a Yehudi, a visible Jew, wearing talis and tefillin, and in Shushan Abir, which was the forbidden city, the royal compound. <coughs> but he was the only Jew like that. <coughs> That's why Yehudi is Yehudi, you know, like the Spartan. Ish Yehudi, Yehudi, Hoya B'Shushan Abir, 
Moreover, as a member of the rabbinic elite, Mordechai was aloof from his weaker, sullen brethren. Only later, during the emergency, at the suggestion of Esther, not on his own initiative, did Mordechai cross the Erkuma de Maya and pray and learn with the others. Even though there was a lot of talking and borching and shul, I'm sure, so he wasn't like it, but Leich Kenos call you enemies, you got to get in with them. Prior to that, he was a Yechidi, not just in his Jewish dress, but in his isolated aloofness. <clears throat> and then came Purim, with the destruction of Haman and company, plus the rise to power of Mordechai and Esther and company. When I say company, like Ezra, for example. Mordechai and Esther look around, and they see the Jews are now wearing their titsas outside, and they're in for all to see, even though they didn't have to. Isn't that the meaning of Right? And Simcha is Yantiv, and the car is Tefillin. Okay? Uh, the language is a little bit funny over here, because, uh, you know, the, I don't want to get into that. Okay, now. Now, Rashi says, famously, Rashi in the Gemara, that when he says, It's Tefillin, it's Yantiv, it's, <coughs> it's um, Brismila. So, uh, that Haman had prohibited these practices. When? Why? He was going to kill him anyway. The whole story happened very quickly, a few days in total, meaning, you know and I know the whole story of Purim from the beginning of Haman's decree to the end, to his death was a couple days. So, he ushered them to keep Mila, you know, they're going to be dead in a few days, uh, uh, Yontev, things like that. Why did he prohibit Jewish religious practices? Why would he? Seems kind of dochic to me. Now, there is a way of explaining this, of course. Rashi says, elsewhere, in the Gemara, Masha because remember it says in the Pasuk that uh, Rav or somebody Pasuk, that he would refer to a Pasuk in the Chumash and the one from the Tocha, which says, the time will come when you will want to sell yourselves as slaves and nobody will buy you. So Rashi says, Masha that it doesn't mean that people won't buy Jews because they're they're going to be all dead soon, but that Haman had actually legislated with his power as prime minister and nobody can buy a Jew. Now, this is not written in the Megillah that there was a, a, a Xera like that to, from Haman. You know, it just said you can kill all the Jews soon. To me, it indicates that Haman, to me, it indicates that Haman wanted to recoup his 10,000 talents of silver, which he probably gave the king despite the king's pro forma turning down of the money, because Achashverosh was always needing money, as they say. And therefore he says, But that's baloney, you know. <laughs> he sent his treasure agents to take it anyway. Haman, therefore, planned to kill all the Jews and personally acquire their wealth. Had any Gentile purchased a Jew in the months prior to the projected massacre, that purchaser would have acquired the Jewish property and wealth, correct? Um, hence, to avoid this, Haman prohibited purchasing any Jew, which therefore fulfilled the prof- prophecy, <laughs> This interpretation fits like a glove with Esther's complaint to the king about Haman, because when Esther finally exposes <coughs> Haman, she uses fiscal language. What kind of language is that? We're going to be all killed and wiped out. 
If we would be sold as slaves, no, you'd get some money out of it. So what she was saying, in other words, is, meaning she wasn't complaining about the breach of liberal uh, values. She said, look, Haman gave you 10,000 talents. But that's chump change compared to what he's going to make out from confiscated Jewish property. Like we saw with the Swiss bankers after the Holocaust, they still have the stolen money. And that money, she said, was not going to go to you. So Haman's not really loyal to you. So basically, Esther was, of course, taking a risk, because the king might still pers- prosecute the massacre, but ma- but, but pocket the money. But, you know, it did split the king and Haman, and that was the main thing for the moment. You get it? He's, she, she's talking the, the language of finance. It also explains the king's wording, Mi Who would dare do a thing like this? I mean, when did the king become a bleeding-heart liberal? This is the words of a Hubert Humphrey, not King Achashverosh. The king sounds like the guy in Casablanca, you know, who would do a thing like this? However, if you say the king is outraged at being financially ripped off by Haman, then the king's words make sense. So Esther says, If you if we sold as slaves, and, you know, you, you, you could get the money out of it somehow, so, all right. But he's ripping you off. Who's trying to rip me off? You get it? Sounds very, very, uh, in other words, Esther knew the king very well. In fact, the Maralmi Prague in his book, Archadosh, says that the essence of Golus Paras was financial rapaciousness in the service of an extravagant lifestyle. Even the Gemara says, that everybody was poor because they had supported his lifestyle. The words of the Maral are, listen closely, <coughs> the etzim malchus of Persia was to suck in money from everybody to support this high lifestyle. Okay, after all, look at the palace he had and everything. Now, fully aware of this, the Jews subsequently made it their business not to touch the property of Haman, his family, and the anti-Semites. The Megillah, which, remember, was read by the Persians. She says, Esther said that. The Megillah repeatedly emphasizes what? See that? They killed Haman. All that is true. They killed the family. All that is true. They didn't touch a penny. Why? Let it go to the king. It's not about money. And they knew who they're dealing with. If the Jews would keep the money of Haman, Achashur said, what's going on over here? You're ripping me off too. It says that passage several times. <clears throat> okay, if Haman decreed that the Jews could not be purchased as slaves, this indicates <clears throat> that the Gentiles were doing that. Otherwise, no need for a decree. Now, if I were a guy, why would I want to buy a slave who's going to be killed <clears throat> come next Ador? It's true you get his property, but once history shows us that once someone owns a slave, which a slave is an economic unit, the purchaser naturally wants to get the most out of him as possible. Only in the movies did he whip the slaves to death. So the smartest thing for someone who purchased a Jew to do would be to hide, if possible, the Jew's identity. So come next 13 Ador, the killers won't know he's Jewish. I mean, the Jew's not going to tell. You'll retain your forced labor and everybody be happy. Now how does one do that? <clears throat> well, first of all, you get, get rid of your yarmulke and your tefillin and your Torah talk 
and you hide your bris meal as best you can. This is not a far-fetched scenario. This happened a lot during the Holocaust. I think many of you know that. Okay? Now, um, and anyway, it's not like they weren't sullen in the first place. This, then, is the meaning, in my opinion, of the statement in Rashi, that Haman decreed the abolition of these mitzvahs. I'll call it gozar. Not that Haman actually legislated against film circumcision and Torah talk, but rather the effect of his decree against purchasing a Jew was to suppress these mitzvahs. Now when the miracle occurred and Haman and company were overthrown and killed, known as Venahabachu, Mordechai did something strange. Um, you got to read the Miguel, I think you know this. Having seen Haman killed on Cholmoy Pesach, and having at the same time become prime minister, because that's what the Pesach says, Mordechai and Esther secured from the king the right to issue a decree countermanding, or more accurately transcending, Haman's decree, which had been signed with the king's signet ring, making it irreversible. As we knew, as we know, the new decree issued by Mordechai gave the Jews the right to fight back. This happened on Pesach. Okay? It's not what you think. This happened on Pesach, right after Mordechai became prime minister. But for some reason... Mordechai delayed dispatching the decree for two months until 23rd of Sivan, which is strange. Okay? Look at the at, at the language there. Let me get a McGill here. Let me look at look at the language there, and you'll see. Uh should be in chapter eight, I think. Uh here we go. Bayamahu Nosan Amalka Khashwirish, Lester Malka base Haman Sarayhudi. Mordechai Bolifnei Amelach. So this is um, first day Cholamoid, I guess, and um, and what you, um, Pesach, and Mordechai was presented as uh, to the king <laughs> by Esther as her champion. <laughs> so the king right then and there took off the ring off the dead Haman and gave it to Mordechai. So on Cholamoid Pesach he appointed a prime minister. And then it goes on to say that Esther threw herself at the feet and said, let me kill the rest of Haman. And the king said, fine. But I'm not finished. Uh, right down in there. What about this decree of 13 Adar? He's going to kill all the Jews. And the king said, and she said, Right? So right then and there, on the first on the first day Khalmoid, she says, um, you know, withdraw the decree. I just gave you Haman and all that. His house. Okay? And now go write whatever you want, a new decree. So in other words, that happened right then and there. In Chalmai Pesach, the time of the fall of Haman. And only later, it was dispatched two months later. That's what I want to point out. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so, so why was there this uh, delay? There are many theories, by the way, to Mepharshim, as to the cause of the two-month delay. I'll just tell you mine. Mordechai wanted the Jews to still be scared, even though Haman was dead. But nevertheless, they knew his fellow anti-Semites would carry out the massacre 
authorized by the king, come the next Ador. With Haman dead, Haman's decree against selling oneself as a slave and thereby saving oneself was bottle. After all, it hadn't been signed by the king. So, you understand? The people, <clears throat> even though Haman's dead, the, the, the decree is still there. You and I know to have a happy ending. They didn't know at that time. Uh, true, Mordechai may become prime minister, but that did not seem to undo the massacre decree. As we saw above, <clears throat> the attitude of the sullen Jews of that generation, of the Echeskel's time, <clears throat> roughly the same time, still resentful of Kavim Harkagigis, was to wish to be relieved from their obligations to perform mitzvahs by becoming the slaves of the Goyim. I know Yecheskel told them they were mistaken, but that was Yecheskel's opinion, not theirs. They, the mass of Jews, held that slavery means you belong to someone else and you belong to his religion. With Haman gone, but the massacre still on, the logical thing to do was save yourself. Sauve kipu as the French say. Save yourself. And undoubtedly, throughout the empire, many did just that. Then, two, and Mordechai knows it. Then, two months later, came Mordechai's decree of 23 Sivan, <coughs> changing the entire situation. Every Jew could now get a 22. In fact, the heck with they could get a howitzer. But who exactly was a Jew? So many had sold themselves to Goyim. Remember, Lashi Tosam, they were not Jewish. Hol Mecharono Hamakam Lumasa Olam, Yotzonim and to the Goyim, this was true as well. Otherwise, why would they purchase them? Okay? <clears throat> now, um, let me see here. Take a look at the 8th chapter in, in, in Esther. And what does it say? Horatzim rochri arecha, shoachash tonim yotzim mechvom t'chayim melch, vadosnit nebushishanabira. So they sent out on fast riders the new, the second decree, allowing the Jews to defend themselves. Okay, so what's going over here? After the decree of 23 Sivan, weaponizing the Jews, being Jewish went from being a negative to a positive. In In fact, now things went the other way. Instead of the Jews seeking to exit Judaism, now many Goyim, Sought to become Jewish. Rabbi Now, how would the Jewish slaves react to this new development? Would they say, We're not Jewish anymore, it's not our fight? Or would they say, Hey, we left a good thing? Even the government are becoming Jewish now. Let's face it, my friends. The best way to get the Jews to do something Jewish is to get a guy say that he likes it. <clears throat> I remember. Years ago, I read a book by this uh, Air Force chaplain, I think it was, in the 50s, 60s, um, that he always carried in his pocket, like laminated or something, uh, from the uh, newspaper that the, the, the Queen of England had King Charles, um, yeah, King Charles now uh, circumcised. You know, the tradition royal family, they used to circumcised. They actually used a moil <clears throat> back in the 40s, whatever. And why did he carry this around? Whenever he met a couple in the Midwest at that time, and they had a kid, they said, eh, we don't want to do bris. Hey, in Buckingham Palace, they did it. The Prince of England did it. Oh, in that case, we want it. <laughs> you see, that's the way the Jews are. So, all of a sudden, they say, I don't want you. 
Hey, what the heck? Rabbi Miyamar, it's Yadin. What's going on over here? This explains the strange conduct of Mordechai after the decree of 23 Sivan's issue. Mordechai reenacts the parade through the streets he did two months before when Haman led the horse. <coughs> the Manos Halevi says Mordechai wore the exact same clothes in the second parade he had worn in the first. And he did not do this parade until two months after he was made prime minister. <coughs> not right away. It is evident he waited until the decree of 23 Sivan, allowing the Jews... I just read the Absukhama, it goes like that. It's, it's evident that Mordechai waited until the decree of 23 Sivan, allowing the Jews to fight back. Now that there was going to be a war, Mordechai wanted to overawe the Persian officials and the Persian military so that they would be moved to intervene on the side of the Jews come next 13 Adar. To do this, he flaunted his power and status. After all, he wore the king's clothes. After all, he wore the king's crown. Right? It says, That's the crown of the king. <coughs> okay? So in other words, he's really showing off. In true Orcha Shadigim fashion, there's a time and a place for everything. Even flaunting your power and wealth. Usually that's not a good idea. as a nouveau riche, you know. But in this specific, there's a time for it. And when you're facing a pogrom, <clears throat> a mass scale, and you want to get the army and the other uh, power sources to back you, that's when you flaunt it. Okay? And it worked. The Megillah mentions three reactions from three sets of Goyim. The Hoi Poloi converted themselves. Correct? Rabbi Miami Arts Misyadim Kinofa Pachari Hunamalayim. The bit the officials and the big shots kissed up to the Jews and helped them fight. It says Bukhosari Amdinos Hashtam Bapakas Osiam Locha Shalamelch Minas Imas Ayuhudim Kinafal Pachad Mordechaiam. So they helped the Jews. The middle class, which is really where the Nazis came from, were paralyzed with fear and refrained from helping the anti Semites. As it says, Remember that? The regular, the anti-Semites figured, we have the masses on our side, and we'll get our friends and all this to join us, and we'll take these Jews down. And then it turned out they were abandoned by all their friends. You see? So the parade worked. On the Goyim. What about on the Jews? Here it gets interesting. So many Jews had sold themselves as slaves to save their lives. Given their sullen mindset, they would like to have regarded themselves <coughs> as no longer Jewish, no longer bound by the mitzvahs. Um, may I say, by the way, the precedent for this was the ten tribes. That's exactly what they did. In halacha, we call such people mumrim. From a purely technical halachic point of view, the question is not so pushy. It doesn't actually say anywhere in the Gemara, once a Jew, always a Jew. Rashi says it by Ochon. Okay? When it says Ochon, the spoils, Chata Yisrael, so you see, Yisrael Shechata Api Shechata Yisrael Hu. That even a Jew did a sin, is called a, a Jew. Hey, that doesn't mean you can't convert. Rashi says it does, though. I mean, it just means, let's say me, suppose I say Lashon Haram. Okay. Yisrael Api Shechata Hu. Let's say you're Mechal Shabbos. Yisrael Api Shechata Yisrael Hu. But where does it say if somebody <coughs> Mamish converts 
to another religion, it doesn't work. He's still Jewish. Uh, Rashi Sebachan, famously, the Gaonim do not agree. Okay? This is the famous sugi of Chalitzis Mumar, and so forth. I copied out here from the Mordechai and Yavamas and other places like that. Uh, just take my word for it for the moment. She was going to post in the oven who mummer la bodisko chamashas kadush aviv. Ain't a zokik, uh, Asia sachiv, lapir shabena chananel, a fil hayahudi, bashas sui achiv, mhaya mummer kisha me sachiv, mashkichinabe lachos loviyamim. Okay? Um, so in other words, there are those who say if you convert, I mean, gedolim, who say that if you convert, you're not Jewish anymore. Uh, I think as, as we all know, the Marashdam and other big achronim, Sephardish achronim, <coughs> back in the 1500s, <coughs> paskin this way <coughs> for the poor women of the Portuguese Moranos. You know what I'm talking about. Where, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, suppose you had this situation, which you did have uh, in Portugal. So these were the from Sephardim who were forced to convert. So, um, Back in 1492 and uh, But the Inquisition wasn't introduced until 1536. So, you had situations where a boy and a girl got married uh, a Kedushin. Maybe they also had a Catholic ceremony, but they, they did have a Kedushin. And then the girl ran away to, to uh, re-embrace Judaism, and the guy wants to stay behind and live as a guy in Portugal. So you can't do like the Rivash and say, well, the... Ma- the marriage wasn't a marriage because, you know, it was a Catholic ceremony. Here we know they had Chubba Kedushin. <clears throat> and so these women were really up the creek because they ran away to Turkey, to Salonika and such places. They, and let's say she's 20 years old and she wants to live a Jewish life and marry a Jewish guy. So she's a hero, right? A heroine. <clears throat> and the guy behind is a Shmo. And you're going to tell me no, but she's an Aguna and tough luck because, uh, you know, her husband stayed behind and she's married to him. And so... There were uh, a whole number of Sephardish Achronim who say, no, once you convert, you know, you're not Jewish anymore. All I'm trying to say is that there is such an opinion. It's not a crazy position to take. You know, I converted, therefore I'm no longer Jewish. If the Jews uh, who had sold themselves and their families at the time of Purim had really become Gaish, had genuinely behaved that way, the anti-Semites would not go after them. I mean, their own their own masters would protect them as valuable chattel. The Jews could have set out the upcoming battle next thirteenth uh, of Adar, like happened with Meroz in the story of Deborah, and they would not have risked their lives to save their fellow Jews. After all, their lives were not in danger. That would have been the smart play, but that is not what happened. Indeed, as soon as Mordechai went on the second parade, and as soon as the Jewish slaves saw that many of the Hoi Poloi were Judaizing. Maybe that's what it took. The Jewish slaves everywhere re-embraced their Jewish identity, mitzvahs and all. Uh, in other words, they gave up the opportunity to rid themselves of the hated mitzvahs, of being subjected to all those 613 plus rules and regulations they always resented since Mount Sinai, especially the ones which are constant and perpetually invaded their personal space, tzitzit, tefillin, circumcision, yantav, and things like that. And again... They could have escaped these obligations. They could have gotten out of it. There certainly, as I said before, was a precedent with the Aseris Hashvatim, because that's exactly what they did. 
as you and I know, the reason there are ten lost tribes is they were sent to who knows where, and they say, we're out of it, we're not Jewish anymore, and they don't marry with the guy, and they're gone. Okay, but these Jews at the time of Purim did not do that. So this is the meaning of Hader Kiblu Abimech You understand? In other words, according to their way of thinking, they did not need to reconvert to Judaism. They held that they were halachically um, uh, Goyim, okay? If, if that's what they had thought. But now, it was like, They were voluntarily converting back to Judaism. Uh, if they're doing that, that's harder kiblu because they didn't have to. And again, I tell you again, the remnants of the ten tribes was the best proof. And may I say, where were the remnants of the ten tribes at that time? Right where the Jews lived in the Persian Empire, wherever it is. I know we don't know exactly where they went, but it's somewhere over there in the Middle East. You know, in uh, in, in Iran, Iraq, and, and it's, I'm serious in, in those general areas, all of which were ruled by the Persian Empire, all of which were the Achaemenid Persian Empire of Cyrus and and Darius, and, and Achashverosh, and, uh, you know, in other words, I'm sure they knew at that time people who were descended from Jews, but now consider themselves Goyim. Uh, maybe that was their role model for trying to uh, escape Judaism, who knows? But that's not what these people did now, okay? Instead, and they uh, re-embraced Judaism. How they got out of slavery, but, you know, now really, to be perfectly honest, Libby Imerly that somehow or other, when it's I have a feeling that when it says Rabbi Me it's it may refer actually to the Jewish slaves who are the Amehoarits. But I don't have the energy to chase that one down now. So those who are listening, that's a project for you to work on. <clears throat> now don't object and say Rabbi Me'amarits, not Kulam. That's silly. The Psukim speak <coughs> of a rove, a majority. Same thing in Harsinai. When it says not on everybody. Not everybody had complaints. You know, there were some, I mean, there were tzaddikim at Harsinai. Rather, most Jews had complaints, but not all of them. Similarly, not every Jew accepted the Torah and knew important, but most of them did. The great majority of them did so. Um, the objectors are probably the ancestors of the non from today, but that's too heavy. Now, to the final point. We have explained Kim of Kiblo in terms of Hadar Kiblu Mechashuresh, but not in terms of Kimbulamila Masha Kiblamato. This teaching that heaven confirmed Purim as a holiday and that the Megillah is part of the canon. We asked, how do we know this? How did Mordechai and Esther know this? Through prophecy? Doesn't seem so. Otherwise, why would the prophets in Anshikhanasigdola oppose Mordechai and Esther when they wanted to include the Megillah in the Bible, establish Purim as a holiday, and prohibit work as a Yantov? Here's my opinion. Here's what I think. If you look in the Seder Olam, chapter 29, it describes the Purim story. And it, there's an enigmatic verse there, which, <coughs> chapter 929, <coughs> which basically goes like this. I think this is the part that people don't pay much, too much attention to. After talking about the fact that the Jews killed all their enemies, in chapter 9, uh, and I can't. I hear them approaching. Osim yom arba sar lechodesh adar, and the other ones the chamisha sar yadar. So in pasuk chaf, this is vayichtam Mordechai said for him aleila vayshlach sporim akol yudim Hashem akol dinos melcha chayshurosh lekayim aliyam liyos osim es yom asar bechodesh adar yom chamisha sar ba bechol shan v'shano. So Mordechai um, wrote to the Jews after the 
victory of the 13th of Ador, <coughs> he sent out letters that they should, you know, celebrate it. Okay? V'kibel, Yudimei Sashachil, Asosei, Komor Chalem, and Jews accepted it. Okay? Um... Does it say Bechol Shanu Shana? I don't think so. The Kanyeh Malihem, he said Bechol Shanu Shana. They should do Bechol Shanu Shana. So it says the Jews accepted that. And then you have the funny Pasuk, um, which says in 29, Mordechai, you do this called Tokev. Then Esther Mordechai wrote. It's called Tokov, the whole story of Purim. Lekayem mesigeres ha-Purim azos ha-Sheinis. Okay? Um, to uh, ratify a second letter of Purim. Now, what's going on over here? Okay? So, uh, the Seder Olam is going in the passage where Tichtov Esther HaMalko Basavichal Mordechai is called Tokov lekayem mesigeres ha-Purim ha-Sheinis. Um, which sounds superfluous because, in other words, Mordechai just said he sent that letters, and the Jews said yes. By the time you finish with the Seder Olam and his commentaries, especially with the commentary of the Maral's brother, he had a brother named Sinai, believe it or not, you end up with the following timeline. <clears throat> the Haman story takes place in the king's 12th year in Nisan. <clears throat> right? That's what it says. Accordingly, the 13th of Ador was at the end of the 12th year, right? Let's go with the Jewish calendar, like Malchus Yisrael, for, for a minute, okay? So, the 13th of Adar, when the when, when the fight happened, would be the end of the 12th year, um, you know, Adar being the end of the year. It took a while for reports to come in from all over the empire that the Jews everywhere had triumphed, right? It means 127 provinces. By that time, it was past Adar. So you're already by the 13th year of the king, 13th year. It was then... That Mordechai wrote to all the Jews, as I just read you, to celebrate Purim. Subsequently, it says, as I read you, Esther sent the second letter, a letter that told the whole story. It's called Tokef. Now, when exactly did she send this letter? Or if you prefer, when did she publish Megillus Esther? Because that's what it means, the letter. According to the Seder Olam, it was the following year, right? So as Mordechai wrote it in the 13th year, and she wrote it in the 14th year. Okay, in the words of the Seder Olam, That's in my rusty, trusty Seder Olam, the Deluxe Weinstock Edition, page 492. Now Rashi actually says this in the Gemara, in Megillah, in, um, in Yonal Fama Beis. The Gemara says, Achasher Shkamamolach Arbeisar. How long was Achashirish a king? A grand total of 14 years. Zakt Rashi. Dixiv, Bishna Shtemis Rei, Hipil Pur Hua Gorol. So the um, original decree of Homan was in the 12th year. Lushana Cheris Nasanes. Now he's going with the idea that, you know, Malchiyum Asolim start with Tishrei. So, Hari Yud Gimel. So, if the downfall of Haman was in, the, I guess, the, uh, let's see, the 12th year, then by the time you get to Ador, it beats the 13th year. Uchsiv, Rashi says, Notice Rashi says explicitly 
that when Esther sends Yeris Apur Mazos Ashenis, it's the 14th year. So she wrote the Megillah the year the king died, because the Mora says he lasted 14 years. Now, when did she write this Megillah and, ish, and publish it? Before he died or after? After. Who was the new king? Her son. Who was the prime minister? Mordechai. What happened then? Do you know a little bit of Tanakh? The base of Megillah was finally rebuilt. Pronto. With the support of the new king who was a child, meaning with Mordechai and Esther and their Hebra. <clears throat> That's the famous story in, in Ezra that I think I did in podcast last year or two years ago. Uh, read the first six chapters of Ezra. Beginning, Cyrus said you can build a base of Megillah. Then he put a stop order. For 18 years, the Jews were not allowed to work on the base of Megillah. It was just neglected and left there. And all of a sudden, 18 years later, the Jews start building again, and the king of Persia says, back them up, boys, and give them all the support they need. How'd that happen? Well, Achashverosh just died. The new king says, help the Jews read read chapter 6 or 7 in the book of Ezra. Really? The new king, who's a few years old, said this? Or his mother and his uh, prime minister and guys like Nehemiah and the others in there did this? That's I don't want to go. That's the whole story of how they built the second base of Migdash. Okay, so the immediate result of the triumph of Mordechai and Esther was the Binyan base of Migdash, hitherto held back for such a long time, and it was due to an extremely improbable set of circumstances. I mean, give me a break. That the king should this, his wife should be Jewish and a from woman, and the kid. I mean, obviously the kid was raised as a Persian. I understand that, but his mother obviously. Uh, had big power, and Mordechai was a big macher, okay? So, what does this extremely improbable set of circumstances indicate to all who are not incurably obtuse? Divine favor, divine confirmation that Mordechai and Esther had acted correctly, <coughs> if controversially. Esther with the whole Yehorg Valyavar Karka Olam business, and Mordechai with the Lo Yishtach Lo and the people complaining, What do we call the, this divine confirmation? In other words, occurred during the 14th year, the year she composed the Megillah. Um, I understand that the Pasuk is written earlier, but when the Chazal put that in there, and they say, they're saying, retrospectively, that's what it means. The evidence was so strong that the Anshe Knesset Dole accepted as proof that heaven favored this inclusion, meaning that's how they read what's going on, basically being rebuilt, and so they agreed to add Purim to the holidays. In the words of Paul Harvey, now you know the rest of the story. Um, anyway, uh, with that, I want to thank once again um, Egla for... for uh, for sponsoring this, and uh, maybe I'll tweak this a little bit by the time Purim comes around.